Welcome to The Improver, the podcast that explores ideas in healthcare improvement and participatory change, hosted by Dr. Naeem Ahmed and Lara Mott. Welcome to another edition of The Improver podcast. I'm Naeem Ahmed, consultant radiologist and clinical lead of Improver. And I'm Lara Mott, CEO and co-founder of Improver. And we're joined today by two excellent guests for a really thought-provoking discussion today centred on there is no performance without well-being. And we're joined today by John. So John Pitts is the founder and chief technical officer of IHP Analytics. John is a neuropsychologist with extensive diverse experience in elite human performance that spans five Olympic campaigns alongside military theatres, international cricket, and most recently, F1, where the search and need for any human advantage is constant. Rob McCargo is the Director of AI at PwC, Evangelist for the Responsible Adoption of AI and Advanced Analytics. He is particularly focused on the issues relating to the impact of automation on the workforce, the skills agenda, and the development of technologies to improve well-being. He is an advisory board member of the All-Party Parliamentary Group on AI and Honorary Visiting Fellow at the CAS Business School. A regular media commentator and keynote speaker, HR Magazine has cited him as an HR most influential thinker. Rob and John, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having us along. Yeah, thank you. John, we've, we've obviously seen that the fascinating discussion uh, between yourself and Rob at, at, at COGX. Um, and I just wondered if you could begin by telling us a bit more about IHP Analytics, your journey, and what the technology actually does. Yeah, great. Thanks, Naeem. It's, it's, it's been a bit of a crazy journey, really. I've, I've spent 25 years or more uh, in sort of elite professional sport and, and military context. Um, unbelievably privileged journey of working with some of the most amazing people on this planet, um, I've been to five Olympic Games now. Um, all sounds very glamorous, isn't as glamorous as it, as it all comes out, but it has given me a phenomenal insight into really diverse different ways in which humans try to perform different tasks. You know, all sorts of um, really interesting areas, such as things like free diving as well, a bit off piste where, you know, the world record for being underwater is 12 and a half minutes. Um, wow. Just let that sink in for a minute. It's... Uh, it's phenomenal, really, what we can achieve as human beings. And all of that really uh, led me to sort of think a bit about sort of where my journey was going, which is originally in sports science. So I've worked extensively in football and cricket and tennis as, you know, advisor on, on that sort of side of things, um, which then took me on to be sort of lead human performance program, where you become aware that there's lots of different parts to uh, performance programs. You know, there's the physiological side of it, you know, biomechanical side of it. Uh, the mental side of it. Um, and so, you know, psychology has been enhanced by neuroscience these days now where we can now scan the brain. So there's this huge area that, um, that needs to sort of come together to understand human beings. They're really not as simple as we, we'd like them to be, talk about them as if we're not them. Um, and so that then sort of led me to uh, work in Formula One, where I suddenly came across this technology capable of understanding how this car is traveling around a track at um, ridiculous speeds. The car has 250 sensors on it. And uh, that information 
all 250 sensors is beaming back to the track side and then back to wherever the HQ of the team is, isn't in about 0 0.04 of a second. So there's this phenomenal ability to combine all of these data things. So really where this all came about from was that um, we, uh, we started sort of putting those two things together, human science on the one side. Um, and uh, it's important to say that um, I'm surrounded by far more intelligent people than myself who are basically there to make me look good. Um, you know, PhD level in, in physiology, you know, psychology, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, the human science element is put together with the technology. So we now have uh, a system which is capable of crunching in excess of sort of one, one and a half million data points a second, uh, albeit to bring together this, this picture of humans and how they're going about what they're doing in their, in their work uh, and life balance. And so then with, with this, I guess, focus on, on data, it makes complete sense um, with your, your, um, your collaboration with uh, Rob and um, PwC. Uh, I guess, Rob, if you could tell us a bit about, you know, your priorities and your role, I guess, as director of AI and how the two things dovetail together. Yeah, Naeem, listen, this whole uh, debate around AI has been really lively over the last four or five years in particular but there's as much hype as there is kind of negative dystopia surrounding this technology let's just be clear here you know that, that this isn't deeply immersed in the world of ai yet but there's a journey towards reaching that in the fullness of time so what's been happening in the last five years has really come to a head during the pandemic where you've seen this extraordinary growth in the application of uh, uh, sort of workforce technologies to try to manage productivity and performance in remote workforces. We've seen a, a litany of stories trying to, uh, you know, apply what's not particularly robust science and amplifying it with technology. And so uh, this has been a huge focus for clients around the world of ours to kind of, uh, you know, automate as much as they can uh, and really sort of double down on some of their technology investments. Now, that's great in terms of driving innovation. We've seen amazing things happen with organizations where they've been achieving things within a space of a few months that were often years down the roadmap. Mm -hmm. So in terms of an innovation catalyst, it's been phenomenal. The problem comes, though, is when organizations have raced too quickly into trying to apply this technology without having looked at it from all the different angles, thoughtfully thought about all the different externalities and unintended consequences. So where we are right now is hopefully optimistically looking forward to some return to a future normal. Uh, we haven't quite managed to quantify that yet. And we've seen amazing things announced by organizations across the globe around uh, different approaches to hybrid working, for example, uh, trying to empower staff. At PwC, we've got a whole new approach to what we call empowered flexibility, where we're giving staff full freedom to work where and when they want. We're even trialing a compressed four and a half day week over the summer. So that's uh, exciting to start being a beneficiary of. So really, from our point of view, we have always been focused upon doing AI or advanced technology well, doing it in a way where we've brought the right experts around the table first and applying the technology at the end. And that, first of all, came to us when John's team approached us you know, three years ago. Let's focus on the human factors bit first. You know, I'm very fortunate to have actually a, 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 a physician in my team. Um, so, so Nick's been brilliant there to bring that, that insight in. We've got a full-time data ethicist in the team. We've got regulatory experts and people that can navigate the legalities of these sorts of things. We've got brilliant comms people that can help to articulate to staff 
how data is collected and how it's used and how decisions are made. So get all these things bit, you know, right first, and then the technology should be applied thereafter. Because I think where you see it going wrong has been where people have waded in too quick, tried to automate or apply advanced technology when the foundations aren't in place. And uh, I know Lara's got some questions about the, the, the work that you've been doing together, but what's the feedback you've had before we get into that from the end user, the person that, you know, the, this collaboration is really intended to benefit because you've got the kind of big data bit, but do you really see it translating in, in those meaningful changes for the end user? So I think if, if I can go first, Rob, I, I think, um, you know, the system is designed fundamentally to benefit the individual. Clearly, you know, as Rob has talked about there, there's the ethical considerations. And, and really, I, 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 I cons- this was a concept which was designed to bring organizations and their people together. You know, we, we face these challenges. Even before we started talking about uh, the pandemic, we were looking at this system as a way of helping us to cope with uh, the, the data and technology revolution that we're now experiencing. You know, we all, we've all seen Moore's law and this idea that technology is exponentially increasing at a rate of knots and the fact is humans you know struggle to cope with that development pathway so the idea here is is, is helping as with the car and the driver in f1 is to try and help that technology uh, and human interface come together so as i say it, it, it's individually focused predominantly because at the end of the day if the individuals aren't getting anything out of it they're not going to use it or really tap into the power of it, which is to assist with behavioral change. So it, it starts on a platform of self-awareness. Um, you know, we, we all see the world a different way. Uh, and, you know, quite understandably, our perceptions don't always marry with, with other people's perceptions. But the idea then in terms of the perceptions about ourselves is as we age, we start to become more aware of, you know, perhaps how we do things and, and what our preferences and our choices uh, but the system is designed to draw our attention towards exactly what is happening to our well-being as we try and navigate our way through the world as it is now. Um, so, you know, it provides a power and an input to that individual, which then has a, a knock-on effect for the organisation. So, I mean, that's really powerful uh, that you say that, John, because I think a lot of people, you know, as Rob articulated at the beginning, big data, people snooping on me, do I own my data, etc. But you really, you, you know, this collaboration is very much about uh, how it can benefit uh, the person at the end of it. Rob, you, you were going to come in. Yeah, I think just to uh, reiterate what John was saying, I think it was really important for us to focus this on being employee centric. And, um, and of course, there has to be some value exchange. So uh, one of the things that uh, we'll speak about in due course is the project itself, you know, so, so how does the organisation benefit overall? Um, I think I think there's a huge amount of appetite for individuals to be more empowered by their own data, but with context. And uh, I keep thinking about my staring at my Fitbit app most nights, wondering why I've had yet another woeful night's sleep. Was it the dog barking? Was it the three kids keeping me up all night? And uh, I think that there's there's real promise now in in aligning these sorts of technologies with the needs of the workforce. And if not just that, uh, I think a, a moral duty and uh, an imperative when you start thinking about what all businesses are facing now what's top of mind for ceos globally now and we know this from mm. our various ceo surveys we launch at davos every every year uh, you know what's top esg absolutely top of the agenda at the moment H- how do we how do we um you know 
try to embed the way that we look after our staff right at the heart of that debate, I think will come front and center. Um, aligning this with your corporate purpose as a, as a responsible employer, you know, we, the people we interview now hear us talking about these lofty ideals of, um, of our corporate purpose. And they're holding us to account now. You know, the very best people want to know that they're working with businesses that are purpose-led mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and, and can measure that and talk about it in tangible ways. Um, the, the list goes on and on. Uh, and uh, this is a very different um, opportunity and challenge for business, but it's only one that can be delivered through something that's intelligent and data-led. And uh, to this point in time, that quality of uh, technology hasn't yet been you know, d- developed at scale in, 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 in these sort of settings. I think all four of us share a common passion for well-being at work, wellness in the workplace, you know, all of the phrases that you are hearing about focusing on improving staff experience. And that's the business that we're in, in in healthcare and and helping the NHS in particular. It might be a good time, Rob, to now cover a little bit about your study and what you've learned, because I do have a few questions and I appreciate both Naeem and I have watched your your talk on COGEX, but some of our listeners may not have. So um, perhaps you could give us a short overview of, of the study and your findings. And I definitely have some questions that I'd love us to explore a bit further on the back of that. Yeah, absolutely. So let me just uh, start at the beginning and uh, John, please cut in to keep me honest on some of the uh, the sort of the, the science and the uh, process on this. So um, we um, started this um, going back now three years ago and uh, it was important for us to understand how to do this well. So as I said before, the first thing you do is get the team right and we pulled together a really quality uh, multi and interdisciplinary team of practitioners across ethics and uh, uh, and data governance and risk and regulatory and human science skills. And then, of course, leveraging John's, uh, uh, you know, excellent world-class team. So what we did is we we ran a, a smaller trial in 2019 with about 50 participants and uh, just to sort of tease out how the technology works and how to sort of do it well. Now, fast forward to the start of the pandemic and uh, we we went to the, uh, the board with a, a request to see if uh, we could extend this trial. And we got the green light. So this saw us uh, end up um, advertising this to uh, participants within PwC in the UK to be volunteers in this uh, in this huge program. And we were absolutely deluged with interest. We sold out within three hours. We had uh, 2,000 people apply to participate in this within three hours. So what that allowed us to do was pick a, a very epidemiologically sound sample that's representative of our entire workforce with several members of our board and then uh, stratified by grade and sex and office location, et cetera. So for, um, for, for several months uh, during 2020, uh, we were doing a number of things. They were wearing a Garmin. So we were collecting biometric data, including heart rate variability, stress, sleep, rest, recovery, and that activity data. Um, we'd also baselined them psychometrically and also looked at baselining some of their environmental conditions, such as did they have uh, a dedicated place to work in their home? Did they have homeschooling responsibilities? They'd also been uh, undertaking a gamified cognitive function test, looking at uh, traits such as uh, ability to switch tasks and concentration, and pattern memory, etc. But crucially, what we also um, asked for their permission for was a series of contextual data. So timesheet information, the hours they worked, how loaded their diaries were and the characteristics of their working day. So this was uh, you know, an enormous exercise to get it right and get it done well. Um, John, did you want to lean in in terms of the, some of the sort of the science behind this and why this is differentiated to 
you know, what might sound similar in the market. Yeah. Okay. So I think, um, thanks, Robert. I think you, you, you've covered sort of the basics of it, but the point of the system is that it integrates all of these things together. So we build up a very rich tapestry, if you like, of the individual and then uh, on a larger scale, the organization as a whole. Um, but fundamentally, there are, there are probably sort of, there, there are three key areas to it that we're trying to, I guess, push the boundaries of, of science when it comes to looking at people. The first element is that um, originally I was, I was, we were trying to get away from using subjective data as much as possible, because again, as I've said, everyone sees the world a different way and we're all subjected to perceptions and bias. But actually, so we brought in this uh, objective data and, and I'll, tell, I'll speak a bit more about that in a minute. But, um, you know, we, we wanted to get this objective data so that we could, you know, really start to deal with the facts, you know, that we deal in sport. You know, we're probably a little bit ahead of the curve in many respects in terms of the fact that people are wired up, you know, to within an inch of their lives at every moment of their, their walking career or their, their, their career. So, um, you know, we, we're very much sort of measuring on, on that daily basis. But. The idea here is then that we've actually found an immense power to be able to relate the objective data to the subjective data, because it really is helping people to understand and just bring their self-awareness closer to, to reality, which if you imagine, you know, conversations, you know, around maybe promotions or uh, annual reviews or things like that, you, you, you can actually start to build quite a sense of, uh, of, of fairness around what's going on. Um, you know, we've moved from this industrial age of top-down hierarchy to a time when I think it's, you know, everyone's sort of looking much more about this value exchange that Rob talks about. So that's very powerful. The second part of it is that we're trying to get away from benchmarking people, um, you know, just basically forming a, a one-dimensional profile of someone and saying, this is you. Um, you know, number one, we know psychometrics in isolation are that they're fundamentally flawed in that people change. We know through neuroplasticity that people change. So telling people that you're a red or a blue or a dolphin or, you know, a four letter code, it, it has a, it has a value. Absolutely. But people change. And more importantly, as we head into these difficult times where, you know, we are going to fluctuate more, we're going to change more in relation to the stimulus that is around us. It's important that people have that room to change. So the, the third part of it is that obviously as, as Rob's talked about is that we're collecting that data across a time series. So it's not just this kind of benchmark snapshot in time, you know, like an annual medical, for instance, as well. You know, that just tells you how well you are on that one day. It doesn't tell you what's happened in the last 12 months. Um, so that we can get this idea of, of the natural rhythms and cycles that people go through. We are, but as humans, you know, there is a, a certain chronology to how we perform and, and, how we, and how we live. And so it's important that we, we can see that, those characteristics across monthly, yearly cycles, just to see how, the factors of the work-life balance influence people. And then the final part of it is that underneath all of this is how we represent the data. Um, clearly, you know, you can collect a load of data, but what's important is how you filter that data to provide meaningful insights and insights that are going to create behavioral change. That's crucial. You know, how do we, how do we look at this data in a way in which we can help people to understand themselves better and then increasingly develop the better habits that are going to allow them to, to get more from their work-life balance. So, yeah, that's the sort of the thinking behind it. So we're in the business of helping organisations create the right environment to improve staff experience and continuous improvement. Ultimately, if you look after your workforce, they're going to give the best possible patient care. And our customer is the NHS, which is the world's fifth largest employer. So when I was 
watching your talk and I was thinking about this, John in particular, you've come from working with arguably smaller teams in these elite sports um, and then you're applying your technology to a giant like PwC, but taking that sample population of a thousand for this study, which has given you all of those insights on what works and how to do it right. Do you think that size of workforce is going to matter here? Do you think this is something that organisations would make available to the whole workforce or just enough of a sample size for, for people to look after a, a certain section of, of the workforce? Or is the vision really everybody should be doing this? Not everybody is going to want to embrace the technology and some people may be absolutely fine without it. Others may be more interested in it and you've got to then appeal to, to everybody. So my question is, does size matter in terms of how you would apply this technology? What I will ask John to say in a moment is, you know, some of the uh, statistical relevance of uh, populations, etc. I mean, I would say that it's important that this technology is not elitist. We think it's elite technology, but it, it can't be elitist. It is, it's got to be made available um, for, for the broader cross section of your workforce. So um, I think that's that's the first thing we'd say. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's appetite across the board. I don't think this is exclusively in sort of knowledge workers or in, in the white collar workforce. I think there's there's interest in this across the board. You know, we, we call this tool My Work Life Analytics. And uh, we think that that uh, ability to empower people with that understanding of their whole life is is something that hasn't been mm. within scope before. And, and, and our own limited experience of this is that there is a latent... Uh, appetite for this level of insight that people have never seen before but um john i don't know if you wanted to speak to some of the uh, statistical relevance of population sizes around this yeah well i mean just just quickly to begin with i mean in my mind it has been designed for an entire workforce i think it's a good segue to bring in though just you know the facts behind the, the ethical uh, nature of it which is number one everybody who does this is a volunteer yeah you know there's no you know, you will do this. It's uh, it's a volunteer status, and you can remove yourself from at any time, and your data is automatically deleted from the system. Um, you know, you can imagine from our side when you work with a company like PwC, we have been to every single level of detail when it comes to you know the legal or the the data privacy aspects of what yeah. we do. Quite rightly, you know, and actually, that's been a it's one of the reasons we approached PwC in the first place was because we knew that if we came out of this with PwC, we could probably do it with anybody. Um, you know, so and, and that's been a very valuable experience um, in terms of the statistical size. Yeah, absolutely. We um, it, it's important that um, it's ep epidemiologically robust. So I spend my life in my roles balancing between and this is going to probably come across wrong, but I, 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 I'm balancing between sort of robust science on one side and and progress on the other side. And I don't that comes across wrong in terms of the academic world. And I, and I really don't mean it. What it means is, is that, you know, the average tenure, for instance, of a football manager is about 11 months. So, you know, when you come in and the, and the manager says to you, listen, I need to make some traction here. I've got to get some progress. A Formula One analogy, I've got to get some rubber on the road. You know, you don't have time to work your way through a robust study. What you've got to do is, you know, hit the ground running, collect some data and think on your feet and iterate and iterate, you know. So, um, you know, we're, we're consistently trying to balance those two things to make sure that you know, absolutely, this has to be scientifically accurate and robust. And, and you know, we've gone to great lengths with that. Um, so, you know, we talk about a sample size if we're, if we're working on a project that is significant enough to make the, the, the data itself significant. Um, but it is absolutely designed to be for organizations 
conversation wide. And, and the idea is that you can you can see the organization as a living organism mm. with the real time status. When you when you talk about a, a real time intervention during the study, did you find that? I don't know, maybe a line manager or someone who was looking at the data was able to put in interventions when they saw that the readings were, for example, demonstrating levels of stress, etc. That's the first part. And the second is, what's our, I guess, moral and ethical obligations then thereafter, if you are seeing I guess, Rob, this would be for you that if you saw, for example, a department within your organization or certain few individuals within your organizations, consistently their metrics were showing that they were in a bad place. What would you need to do to take some action on it? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's worth saying that for the, uh, the the thousand person trial, we we hadn't quite finished the engineering to do the real time analysis. And that that's now in scope for, for this latest iteration. So we, we didn't quite have that level of uh, insight in, in real time. Um, but if I look forward now to this new world of work, this is one massive global experiment. Uh, we've had the, you know, the news about the, uh, you know, the unlocking and the removal of restrictions. We're going to see a lot of organisations trying multitude of different workforce strategies, in office, remote, you know, uh, asynchronous work patterns, uh, contingent workers, gig economy comes into the fore. And we don't have good baseline data about how this works. And uh, I think I just need to reiterate that point. The vast majority, I think, of this from the business leaders I meet is well-intended. It, it, it thinks it empowers staff. It drives productivity up. Uh, it's what people appear to want. And our big studies uh, suggest that is the case. Uh, we did a, a study of 32,500 workers globally a couple of months ago. And uh, if I recall the stats, I think 72% specifically wanted a mix of in-office and, and at home. Um, some Quite a big minority actually suggested they never wanted to enter the office ever again in the future. So uh, how companies accommodate this now is going to be very interesting. And, and at the moment, we have a suite of tools that only provide you with part of the picture. And that's, as John has said, a number of subjective devices like uh, employee pulse survey data, which huge stock is placed into. Um, and, you know, the usual metrics around staff attrition and turnover, which effectively is too late in the day to do much about it to affect change. So I, I think um, our vision, uh, John and mine, is that this is really powerful now to provide that real-time assurance so that if this well-intended well-being strategy um, is not leading to the positive outcomes you want. You can do something about it with hard evidence and metrics and objective data rather than gut feel. And a lot of the gut feel is, is, is you know, is, is really well thought through and well intended. But in our case, it surfaced a year ago with um, a great gesture to offer the Headspace app to all of our 24,000 people in the UK. And it went down really well. It's great. But it wasn't right for everybody. And when you start looking at this through a commercial lens, there's a real opportunity now and uh, companies are going to be looking at these interventions that they're investing in and wanting to understand what gives them the right bangs for buck as well as delivering on some of these uh, moral expectations Amy, that you speak to um john i probably refer to you around you know if we're empowered with data what we should and shouldn't do about it because you're the expert in the field in this <laughs> thanks um yeah no look I, I, I just had a couple of quick points in that um what was interesting was that um we were able to look at the uh, the communications of the senior leadership of pwc throughout the pandemic um and uh, the timing of those in terms of for instance 
You know, there, were, there was one announcement that said that, you know, nobody would lose their jobs. You know, I mean, when we talk about sort of managing crises, you know, I think what we saw was, was some very clear communication, very timely communication, um, you know, and, and I'm not just saying this, it, it was quite impressive in the way that it was done. And you could see, you know, reflecting on the data, you can see a, a benefit to that communication strategy, absolutely. Um, wow. You know, so I, I think it would, you know, that, that's a very valuable part of it. You know, the idea again is that you know, to try and provide a front foot position for a business, you know, let's talk about mental health as an example. Clearly, you know, there is a, there's, there's a clinical line at some point where unfortunately some people reach a point where, you know, it requires a clinical intervention. The system is designed to, uh, to be able to prevent as many people getting to that point as possible. You know, we want to be able to, you know, demonstrate the ability that, um, you know, these, the, the, the person can be given the power, the, almost the accountability to take control of themselves. You know, it, it, it's great to have all these support systems in place, you know, and, and organizations will continue to deliver those. And, and that's absolutely right. But equally, you know, the, the, it, it's a two way street. So we've talked a lot about it being sort of, um, you know, individual centric, but as, as Rob said several times, it, it's a value exchange, you know. So, you know, there is this kind of, two-way trust if you like that you know we're giving you this system to try and help you and here are the tools for you to take accountability for yourselves and really and truthfully I think you know we are going to see you know more of a requirement for that it's the same in sport you know you you stand on the side of the pitch and and once those players cross that white line there's nothing you can do about it they're, they're gone they're, they've got to make their own decisions you know as a coach you can stand and you can yell and you can you can do what you like to try and get that message through, but really, you know, you're onto a winning thing when those people are making decisions for themselves. We are continually moving in a, in a direction, as Rob has said, where these sorts of things will become important. Now, you know, some organizations, I'm quite sure, like PwC, will, will, will take the front foot and say, okay, well, you know, we, we, we want to tackle this. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's probably, like with anything, going to be an initial phase that's a bit bumpy and, yeah. you know, and we need to get it through. But ultimately, you know, I see so much talk about the future of work and I can see so many people sitting around and, and discussing things from different angles. You know, what this system is designed to do is to provide the information to take those steps forward with as much confidence as possible. Yeah. Some organizations will, will take steps forward and the sooner people make a start, the, the sooner we're gonna to get to a place where we can manage the situation effectively. You know, those, those organizations that don't do that, they're going to get left behind and ultimately will we'll find themselves with more trouble and probably more cost when it comes to the support mechanisms that they rely on. I, I like the front foot approach that you've described. And as you said, both yourself and uh, Rob, this is kind of uncharted territory and you're, and you're, you're definitely the pioneers uh, in this space. You've made this very employee centric. How much is the balance on empowering the employee to look at their own sleep or bits and pieces and be able to make those changes themselves in the technology and how much is focused on the individual group and then organizational view because I guess you're kind of B to B to C in terms of your your model are you in that you're selling the software to the organization but actually you really need to look at look after that that end consumer arguably more so than than perhaps the business that's that's purchased the software so is is there a balance there in terms of your development focus uh, you prioritize great, one over the other yeah it's a great question lara i mean a case in point the participants got their dashboard first 
and the organization one has only just been done wow, um, yeah, you know more great. recently so that that was always our focus to make sure that was uh, up front front and center you know it's it's, it's still a big investment you know there, yeah. there was appetite these people still had to you know sync their watches and uh, play some games and you know make sure that they were effectively contributing to the journey um so that that's a nice way of putting it it'll be to b to c um but nevertheless the employer still has to pay for this uh so there's got to be something in it for them and in our case and i should probably just uh expand a bit upon this it was phenomenally powerful mm-hmm. uh, as john alluded to there's been some interesting findings around the impact of internal comms on the well-being and stress of the workforce there was very very clear evidence of um, things like um, the personas of different staff and the characteristics of how they've affected affected them in the sort of working from home environment you know whether whether or not you had homeschooling and uh, and a dedicated place to work it might sound obvious but we could absolutely measure that uh, as an impact on people's sleep Um, we could absolutely see um, the impact of both external stimuli and what they were hearing in the press as well as our internal processes on the stress of the overall workforce. But I think one of the most interesting areas, John, was the uh, the finding we fa- we discovered that looked at actual biometric stress. And then in looking at the comparable perceived self-reported stress. And uh, John, I think that's probably one worth teasing out in a bit more detail if you wanted to expand on it. Yeah, thanks, Rob. No, I, it's, it, it's fascinating. I, I spoke earlier about the difference between subjective and, and objective data, but you know, stress has become this huge thing that we're all talking about now. And, you know, if we just go back a stage, you know, technology, we are effectively addicted to our phones now. Um, you know, we, we see when you get a like on Facebook, you know, you get a shot of dopamine, all, all this sort of stuff, which we can see through neuroscience now tells us that our brains are having to adapt, you know, significantly in their functionality to cope with all the bombardments of different information we get, you know, um, so it, it's, you know, we, we talk about sort of mental health a lot, but stress, I think, you know, gets banded in as well. But I, what the data points to, frankly, is that there's a massive need for stress education. Number one, stress has become a, it's become a dirty word, but we're designed to get stressed. You know, we, we, we're not designed to be these kind of flatline individuals that, you know, never go outside of our comfort zones. So, you know, stress can be good you know it can prepare you to deliver a pitch to a client or you know to speak to your boss or to have your performance review or whatever it might be you know it's it, it can be a good thing and, and essentially you know we we need this education around this but i mean specifically to what rob's talking about yes we saw a marked difference between how people evaluated their stress and the, their actual physiological response and you know in in pretty much 100% of the cases we're seeing a, an, an overreaction to a stressful situation. So if you just stop and think about that for a moment, what's happening is the emotional brain, you know, our kind of very primal element of our brain is producing, producing a response to the, the situational stimulus, uh, which is, you know, significant in preparing us for, you know, our, our, our archaic systems of, of fight and flight, flight or flight. Um, and, uh, you know, but then what the data is able to do, because, you know, the, the system is on your wrist or it's, it's on your on your phone, it's able then to draw your mind towards what's actually happening. And, you know, even that simple function will see a decline in the, the anxiety that the individual is um, is experiencing. So, you know, you potentially have this if you couple that together with, you know, working through 
with people some some individual uh, mechanisms to help them to cope with stressful situations you know that could be breathing exercises you know meditation even just some simple thought processes or mindset processes that we use with elite athletes all the time we can help people to harness their stress far more effectively and that's that's my point about this front foot approach you know stress in an isolation is perfectly normal you know where we get into trouble is when that stress or for that matter sleep or anything along those lines becomes becomes cumulative so we get into a cumulative place where it spirals out of control and then the the, the thermostatic regulations in our body for instance that they, they get bent out of shape and then they can't cope and that's when we get to a clinical level so what it points towards frankly is you know where this system by bringing in the uh, the objective side of the data can really help individuals to uh, to understand their responses and just to correct that perception um, and then you know if you look at it from an organizational perspective you know what we're able to do is to evaluate you know things like performance cycles to look at what works best you know again <laughs> you know I'll give you an example I don't know whether if I mention the name Kevin de Bruyne um, he's a famous footballer at Manchester City you know recently he negotiated his contract in his effectively his performance appraisal and he, he hired a data analyst to put together some statistics to show just how important he was to the football team you know how many times the team won with him how many times it won without him all a whole host of data and took that into his effect his contractual conversations and said listen you know this is what you want to pay me but this is what my value to this team is and you know so we, we, we sort of think about this top-down approach of how the data can be can be used to you know, to look at you, but there's no reason why the, in, the, the data that we're creating for an individual can't be used in a positive way for them to walk into these conversations and have a two-way conversation rather than this sort of top-down hierarchical thing. So, you know, there's, there's all sorts of aspects that we can use with all of this data to turn, just to think outside the box and change the frame a bit. And Rob, from, from that, I guess, from the, the whole, uh, the experiment and the test and, and the study that you you did, what are the, the key things? You've mentioned some of those, but that you've immediately kind of implemented and thought, these are things that we'd like to take forward now before we even go any further. These are like no brainers that we should we should implement. Well, the, the, uh, the, the, to lead on from what John said, um, it's, it's clear that businesses have wrestled with the optimal approach to performance management for, for forever basically some people have scrapped it entirely some have you know some one big event each year i think it's clear to see that there's a need to spread the the approach over a, a multiple phases rather than just having one or two big events in the year so that's seen us take some immediate action to uh, to adapt the performance cycle and uh, that will continue to adapt as we start to enrich this this data as we go ahead the the the, the biggest thing really is is how do we um, now have the ability to to, to really provide not, and, and, and to pick up one thing you said, Naeem, you know, targeted interventions. We're not talking about targeting individuals here because we don't have access to look at individual data, but but to ensure that we don't have this one size fits all approach to ticking the well-being box. If there's particular parts of the workforce that need this type of solution more than this, we're able to offer that. So, so moving ahead, um, this is really the start of our big experiment ourselves. Uh, as of this week, we have this new approach to empowered flexibility uh, with staff having significant autonomy on how they run their lives. 
um, with compressed hours and all sorts of different uh, things we're innovating. Uh, the clock starts ticking now. How, how do we move away from lagging indicators and start using technologies like this to provide us with that, uh, that level of assurance we've never seen before? And uh, maybe we'll report back in a year's time and tell you how that's gone. Brilliant. <laughs> Consider yourselves invited for sure. Uh, and then uh, we are obviously in, in healthcare. Um, what are the things, um, I, I guess, would you say that uh, you could see the read across to healthcare? I mean, I can see it immediately, given, given the, the situation that we've just come through in terms of, well, get, still, still um, tackling in terms of the pandemic, but not only that, but the incredible amount of um, mental stress burnout etc on on my colleagues uh what are the things that you would say that we could read across into healthcare yeah so i i think um if i jump onto that one i think um so with some of our other clients and um you know working across uh some healthcare areas we've um with the pandemic specifically um we saw in some of the data that uh you know after the first wave if you like that um there was a significant inability to actually recover before the second wave. Mm. Um, and, and some of the, our, our clients were, were talking about, you know, wanting to make sure that after the second wave, there was a, a far greater ability to recover. I mean, really across all different industries, quite understandably, we've seen, you know, significant declines in wellbeing, um, you know, and it's that ability to recover, which it is, in the sporting world is something which is a given, but um, we, we're just not seeing that, that recharge, if you like, of batteries to get people back to, to where they need to be. And I think that's, you know, whether it's, you know, shift patterns or whether it's, you know, the fact that the lines are blurring now between, you know, work and life and people are, you know, again, your phones are coming through at eight o'clock, nine o'clock in the evening. That, that I think the key area is that we're able to, look at ways in which we can assist people to recover better. Um, you know, we use a metric called body battery, which um, you know, is quite effective at, at showing the impact of stress uh, and, and things like activity on that ability to recover. And, and, and recovery is not just, um, you know, sitting down and having a break. It, it's taking exercise, which actually helps your body to become more resilient. Um, we're seeing significant impact on sleep patterns as well. You know, and often people, it, it's often just about doing the basics well. You know, our, our bodies like a rhythm. They, they like to do things, that, they like to do things that they expect, you know. So, you know, regular sleep times, you know, making sure that you, you, your environment in which you're sleeping is right, making sure that you have a pre-sleep routine. All those sorts of things are things that, you know, we've started to implement in the, in the healthcare area just to kind of, um, just try and get back to doing some basics well. There's significant issues, isn't there? Um, we all know the challenges facing this, uh, you know, heroic workforce that's uh, gone through the mill in the last uh, year and a half or so. There is, uh, and it gets back to the earlier question about, is this technology for all? And it, and it is, it, it can be. And uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, the power of this is, is really shifting the balance towards uh, workforce empowerment. And uh, I think that's where the direction of travel is going more broadly. Uh, so, yeah, we'd, we'd love to see the opportunity to, to see how this lands in the, in, in the NHS in the, in, the, in the months and years to come. So uh, it's, it's an exciting time. I mean, I, 
in summary, I think where I'm at with this whole thing is that there's lots and lots of talk, as John was saying, about the future of work. And that's kind of here now, isn't it? There's people doing really big, bold, exciting things yeah. in, in the way we operate and the contract we have with our people and, uh, and, and the way we're trying to focus on different outputs rather than simply squeezing every last drop of productivity out of a depleted workforce. So I'm quite optimistic in the main that actually some of these big trends are shifting in a positive direction. But um, at the heart of this, the only way we will know if it works is if it's allied with really high quality, proven, scientifically valid data and technology that's um, been tried and tested. And this is where we're now at. Excited to say. What, what are you most excited about, John? Um, uh, I'm excited about a lot of things. I hope it comes across, you know, I didn't I designed this because I can see a real value to it. You know, I, and I, I genuinely, oh God, it sounds, it sounds so oh, cringeworthy in a way, but I really mm -hmm. want to make a difference with this. Um, you know, I can, I, I'm sitting there, I was sitting there in the sporting world and I'm thinking, well, you know, clearly we need to adapt it for this environment. Um, uh, and, you know, we're, we're certainly not pretending that we've got everything finished. You know, th this is a journey we're on. And like I said earlier, you know, we've got to start somewhere. Uh, and to Naeem's point about, you know, well, what happens if, you know, you uncover things people don't know about? Well, you know, we either move towards that better time or we don't. You know, I mean, what does everybody want? There's going to be bumps in the road, like I said. And but we've got to start this journey now. So, you know, we're looking for organizations like PwC who recognize that, you know, th this this is something that we need to start now. And in five years time, we'll be so much further on. I mean, we've got. Um, Part of our system has what we call compound metrics. So, you know, you take well-being as an example. If you step onto the street today and ask people what well-being is, you're going to get 10 different answers. Yeah. And, and in the scientific papers, there, there's lots of models, you know, and you can, you can get questionnaires to determine those sorts of things. But, you know, for the first time, we've produced a well-being metric, a compound metric, which can give you a value for well-being for an individual and then obviously for an organization uh, overall. And we've got lots of other met compound metrics, presenteeism, resilience, you know, we all the time we're, we're designing more and more, you know, we can, we can measure burnout, fatigue, you know, in, in, in perhaps more physical uh, uh, applications as well, like pilots, for instance, we're doing quite a lot of work uh, in those sectors. So, you know, it really, it's a case of the system was designed to have these multiple lenses that you could look at the data with. Um, and and it, so when you say, what am I excited about? I'm excited to see where this goes because genuinely is designed to embed within an organization to really kind of evolve the, the, the HR function, if you like, um, not to eradicate it, but to work with it to, you know, we want to, we, we have great fun going to different organizations and, you know, working out with them what we can do to orientate the data in a certain way to help them. You know, we can, we can bespoke apps or dashboards or whatever it might be to, you know, to really kind of get to where their pain points are or help them on this journey. And so what I'm excited for really is to see where we are in five years time, because if we can get through this kind of initial phase of, um, okay, well, this is a bit different, it's a bit new, you know, the sooner we start collecting data in the right way, obviously, but the sooner we start collecting data, the sooner we can get to some really exciting places. I mean, you know, Rob mentioned ESG and, and diversity and inclusion, you know, I believe that, you know, cognitive evaluations, for, for example, uh, and, the, and the ability to use more objective data 
I believe it's it's by working in those sorts of areas that we can really start to eradicate things like CVs and again this sort of bias that we have within organizations the only way you're going to remove bias is with the black and white data you know uh, but actually sort of getting away from you know subjective examples of how we go about things and really bringing through data to help to uh, to, to bring those things on the ESG agenda I, I'm a bit of an outsider I guess from sport but I look at it and I think there's no way E and G really get to where you want them to go until the S bit's right. Because until you stop people throwing plastics in the oceans or, you know, dropping litter by the side of the motorway, whatever it might be, and until people, you know, are willing to look at themselves and actually create the right habits for how they go about doing things, that's not going to change, you know, until we can, you know, people, oh, I'm on my soapbox now, but, you know, <laughs> you, 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 see, you see people who are, you know, innately quite selfish in the way they go about their lives and you know until we we realize we're on this planet together you know and we have to function together and work together and and you know find better ways of doing things until we do that we're not going to get the e and the g bit right so you know i believe it starts with the s basically john uh, and rob what comes across from both of you really strongly is you know that that values base which is saying you know what we just want to make things better um, for people and I think that really resonates with us and I'm sure it's going to resonate with everyone listening in with that um, so I, you know I would like to thank you both uh, for joining us and for sharing uh, the the wonderful work that you're doing which will ultimately um, make it a better place to work for for everyone so so thank you for that we have a section in the podcast called Small But Mighty, where normally we showcase an idea that has uh, been shared by one of our partner organisations using the Improve Our Solution that might be what on the outside looks like a relatively small change that can actually make a big impact. And rather than um, giving one of those here, we'd like to turn it over to you guys to see if there's a sort of small but mighty idea or learning from your work over the last 12 months that perhaps our listeners could take away and potentially apply in their own uh, work setting. Um, well, if, if I'll go first, Rob. But, um, for me, it's about, it, it really is understanding about doing the basics well. I think it's, it's so vital that we recognise just how our lives are, being changed with the times that we're in so you know we've talked about self-awareness and everything else but i would really encourage people to just consider looking yeah you know, we we spend a third of our lives asleep but not many people are doing it well anymore you know it, we, so we need to sort of have have a good look at the basics of how well you're sleeping because it make if you came to me and said what is the what is the the, the biggest bang for my buck i can get in terms of performance enhancement i would tell you it's your sleep and, and second to that is understanding how to recover, you know, how to rest effectively. And when I say that, and we talk about things like body battery, you know, it's the type of exercise, for instance, that actually helps to boost your, your, your battery, if you like. And, you know, simply going for a walk, getting some fresh air, getting some light, all those things, basics. And I, don't get me wrong, I, I know they're difficult to do in our, in our modern lives, but, you know, for instance, people who take these walking meet, meetings where they go outside of the office and walk around the block, brilliant you know it's those sorts of things you know considering your activity and you know we talk about this work-life balance and I think it's just important that people 
you know, we, we, we think a lot about the work side of that equation, but what people aren't doing enough is thinking about the life side of that equation, you know, and just whatever time you have available to you, maximizing it. And if you can get those little bits I've talked about in terms of sleep, you know, rest, recovery, activity, if you can get those little things aligned, you know, because for, for each and every individual, you know, they all play a slightly different role. But if you can get those, those bits aligned, you'll be amazed at how your quality of life improves. Oh, thank think, you. There's lots there. Yeah, <laughs> there was, <laughs> lots, lots, lots of uh, bits added up to more than mighty, I think, wasn't it, Lara? Um, I, I think really my dawning realization on this the last year, and, and bear in mind, I was a participant, so I got my own data and, and picking up what John was saying there. You know, I've always known about bad sleep. I haven't really understood the impact it was having on my life. You know, I can see with my own dashboard the effects it's having on my ability to uh, to, to to look at pattern memory which i guess is a an ai practitioner that's maybe slightly <laughs> a disadvantage for me so 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 for me it's about sort of connectedness and it's realizing that we don't have these multitude of individual silos and systems in our lives and we switch one up and we switch one down and we compartmentalize this and that it, it's, it's so holistic isn't it is every single thing we do we experience we uh, see in the workforce and in, in, in our lives working and offline as well, it all adds up to the sum of the parts. Uh, and and uh, the exciting thing now is, is just having the, the proof that that is the case and, and, and realizing that, uh, you know, we are really complicated creatures. Uh, and therefore, the inference I've made is that whilst we have seen the power of technology with people, the, the way we've been doing it for so long now has been trying to codify and turn us into these units of uh, of, of, of labor and and we're too hard and we're too weird and too complicated to do that systematically so for the first time i think it's actually how do we actually adapt the technology to us rather than trying to adapt us to the technology brilliant thank you both so much we are going to be watching your journey with a huge amount of interest. Naeem, was there anything else you wanted to add? I just want to thank you all. I think everyone will find this conversation uh, just full of a wealth of information uh, and it's really cutting edge and exciting stuff that you're you're both doing. So we wish you well for the next part of the, the experiment as well and to thank you for your time. So thank you, Rob and John. Thanks, Lara. Thanks, Naeem. Really uh, great to be on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks, guys. Enjoyed it. The Improver is a production of Improver Limited. Thank you to today's guests, Rob McCargo and John Pitts. To learn more about the Improver solution, visit improver.com. Subscribe to The Improver at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening.